Hello, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and today I have an awesome guest revisiting us here at Mercola Healthy Pets. Dr. Rob Silver is joining us. Dr. Rob graduated from the Colorado State School of Veterinary Medicine, and he is the Chief Medical Officer for RX Vitamins. He also is the author of Medical Marijuana and Your Pet. He established a thriving integrative practice in Boulder, Colorado, which is where I'm guessing, Rob, you kind of mastered the art of learning, putting all of the information you've researched into practice for decades at a time when it comes to using therapeutics for patients. So that is the topic of the day is cannabis or hemp derived products, how to use them and how safe they are. So first of all, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah, awesome. And I really view, I think the entire veterinary industry kind of views you as the expert when it comes to understanding this very confusing topic. And I know that um, as you have learned and uh, investigated, uh, you have been able to apply a lot of the principles that you are being educated about to the veterinary realm. And for that, we're forever indebted to you. But let's start with topic number one, which is usually, at least for my audience, safety. So Dr. Rob, talk to us about, um, we know that these er that these herbs are fan fanatically safe if they're used appropriately. Uh, and really, I think that this herb is a gift to modern medicine, and I'm so thankful we have it. However, there, there are some risks if it's done wrong or if you don't know what you're doing. Talk to us about how your top safety tips for navigating this confusing world of cannabis and hemp and, and what your suggestions would be. Okay, well, I think the first place to begin as far as safety has to do with um, the choice of the product um, because there are a lot of products in the marketplace as more and more companies are seeing an opportunity to, to make money and some of the companies are launching products which may not contain what they are supposed to contain. Some, for instance, hemp is a form of cannabis that has very, very low levels of THC non-psychotropic levels of THC in dogs, we have found are extremely sensitive to the adverse effects of THC. So if you have a hemp product that is improperly labeled or improperly extracted, so it has an excessive amount of THC in it, then you could have an adverse reaction. This is one reason why I think that um, for most situations, we don't really need the THC to get good response. So there now are products in the marketplace which are zero THC, which are less likely to cause any kind of THC reaction. So um, I think the choice of the product is important and you need to talk to the company, you need to ask them to give you evidence and proof as far as you know, what really has been measured in terms of what's in that bottle, which should be what's on the label. We have done several safety studies now for CBD in dogs, and we found that essentially it's, it's really quite safe. We don't have all the details worked out, but, it, but at dosages that were given that were maybe four to five times higher than what we need to use clinically, um, we saw some diarrhea, we saw some mild elevations in a liver enzyme called alkaline phosphatase, but it was transient and the other liver enzymes were normal. So it, it appears that CBD is, is relatively safe, especially when given at the dosages that are currently being recommended. Um, higher dosages might run into problems. So I think that What about for kitties, Rob? Well, kitties um, actually do very well with cannabis, with CBD, and, and, and aren't as sensitive to the THC as dogs are. 
So um, everything I'm saying, but we just have not had the studies yet in cats. Cats are a lot harder to study. They're a lot harder to give things to. They're a lot harder to get blood from. So, you know, those studies have not really been um, conducted yet, but hopefully they will be, and then we'll get the details as far as cats. But it appears that cats are, are it's also safe for cats in spite of their, their livers, particularly, you know, difficulty in metabolizing certain types of things. And what about this concept? I've heard from many, many enthusiasts that uh, having the whole plant, including a teeny, tiny fraction of THC, having the entire plant, including a micro, maybe I would call it homeopathic amount of THC, may be more therapeutic. I, I have talked to a number of veterinarians that believe that cannabis-derived CBD has been more effective in their patients than hemp-derived. Any research, any information about that? Well, I personally, I think that's kind of an urban myth um, that you'd need THC for a product to work. There is, there, I would like to make a definition. There is something we call isolate, which is like 99.7% pure CBD. And studies have shown that when you're using that pharmaceutically purified CBD, that you need much higher dosages of it than you would need with what they call a full spectrum or a broad spectrum extract. Full spectrum, broad spectrum extracts simply mean that you have all of the, you have the full spectrum of terpenes and major and minor cannabinoids and flavonoids that are naturally occurring in the plant also are in the extract. And as an herbalist, I can tell you that the whole plant works much better than any isolated part of it. And that's why we're able to get good clinical response at lower dosages with broad or full spectrum as compared to isolate. Um, for the last three and a half to four years, I, I work for a company where I've designed a product that we sell specifically to veterinarians. In the last four years, We've distributed 150,000 bottles of this product and put it into the hands of veterinarians who have then gone ahead and, dis and dispensed it to their clients uh, for, their, for their pets' problems. And this product has zero THC in it, and yet we are getting remarkable results with it without any THC, without even a homeopathically small amount of it. So... Um, so I think that THC has good effects, and I think that the THC um, could have good effects when combined, does have good effects when combined with the CBD, but it's not necessary. And I think there are risks associated with THC in dogs who are sensitive to it. So I think that, you know, as long as you're using the right potency of the product, enough milligrams of the CBD, whether it has THC or not, maybe more important whether you're treating more severe pain, you're treating more aggressive cancers, those seem to be needing more THC than simple uncomplicated pain, um, anxiety, epilepsy. Uh, in fact, THC has been shown to maybe precipitate some epileptic um, seizures. So it's, so we're still learning, you know, and there is controversy around it. And I, and I think that as long as you're using low levels of THC that aren't going to be you know, uh, adversely affecting the dog, I think you're okay, but I don't think you need it. I don't think it's based on this experience that I've had, this empirical experience with, you know, 150,000 bottles. That's a lot of it's clinical experiences. 
So you mentioned a few conditions, of course, pain, and you yes. mentioned uh, in your research. Are you so we can cover that seizures, pain, anxiety. What are some other indications that you would consider reaching for CBD for when it comes to managing either mental or emotional issues in dogs and cats or physical issues? Um, and 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 would just the, talk to me a little bit about dosing with some of those. Are there, is there like a lower dose for anxiety versus a, obviously higher doses and more frequency of dosing in certain conditions? How does one go about navigating that? Is that one question? <laughs> So, okay, so th those are good questions. So uh, I'll start at the end. Um, we are finding that for conditions like anxiety or behavior issues, that using a lower dose seems to work just fine. And um, I've established a range of dosages, and I'm going to be using the metric system to describe this, although we probably need to translate it into pounds for, um, for your um, average um, pet owner. But in general, we're looking at a tenth of a milligram per kilogram of body weight at the low end and five tenths of a milligram per kilogram of body weight at the high end. So at the low end of 0.1 maybe to 0 0.2, 0 0.25, that's a realm that works well for anxiety and can work well for minor pain. And we've even seen it have some effectiveness with epilepsy. So my suggestion to the, the pet owner who's looking to introduce the CBD to their pet is to start with a low dose, because oftentimes we'll find that an animal will respond really well at dosages that are much lower than we would expect they would respond to. And you know, the stuff isn't cheap, and, um, and there is always the potential when you're using something new in an animal that it could have some sort of an unexpected reaction. So I think it's always best to start low, Try that for a couple of weeks, see if you're getting the response you want, and then bump it up a little bit. We know that, you know, I'm talking about a tenth of a mig per kg twice daily, but we know in the safety study, they were doing five migs per kg, and that was safe. So there's a lot of wiggle room with dosage, and the, the mantra with human medical marijuana is start low, go slow, and stay low. That it really, you're best off working with the lower dosages, the more physiological dosages than the pharmacologic dosages. But, you know, um, there are, in terms of applications, you know, certainly anxiety, it's interesting how it works because the CB2 receptor um, will connect with the same receptor that produces the serotonin and the serotonergic types of neurotransmitters, and that's where we get the relaxation. But um, when we have, um, but we also can use it for pain response. Um, anything, any condition that's an inflammatory condition. So irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, asthma, these all could be good applications for it. A lot of people want to use it for atopy, for you know allergies, and it should work for allergies because there are CB receptors in the skin of dogs. They've measured it. We've got some studies that show that. But I don't anecdotally hear clinical reports of animals who have atopy responding well to CBD. Maybe we're not using the right dosage, maybe we're not looking at the right things, but theoretically it should work, but we haven't seen it actually working. And Rob, do you ever dose more than twice a day or not really? You could. The, the pharmacokinetic study that was done um, showed a half-life of four to six hours which implies really three times a day dosing, but it's not that practical for most 
pet owners to be able to do that three times a day. So we're rec so, and twice daily seems to work fine. And in fact, even once daily sometimes works fine. So I think three times a day would be more for where you're trying to, you know, get even higher dosages and maybe the animal's a little, is, isn't compliant with larger volumes of the, uh, of the CBD oil. Yeah. And does it work on all types of pain, neuropathic pain, pain, bone pain? Is it, are there receptors in all of these tissues so it could be beneficial across all types of pain? It is good for many types of pain, especially neuropathic pain, because CBD has an affinity for the nervous system. It crosses the blood-brain barrier. It actually it works directly on the nervous tissue to reduce inflammation, to reduce pain. So um, it does work on all kinds of pain. As you get into more severe pain, that's where we need to bring in the THC. Um, Why is that? Why is that? Well, because... CBD and THC actually treat pain in two different ways. CBD treats the pain by reducing inflammation. THC reduces the pain by actually interfering with the pain signals from the nociceptive um, nerve endings. So when you use both of them together, you get a much better pain response. And in response, you know, going back to your question about do you need THC, when you start getting into more severe pain, yes, you do need more THC, but it's problematic because you need more THC than is available in hemp, which means you're gonna to have to be going to marijuana. You're gonna to have to be going to a medical marijuana dispensary to get a product that has enough THC in it to affect the pet to reduce pain. And then you run into a slippery slope because if the animal, if the dog has no exposure to THC it, and it's given accidentally too much, it could, have, it could be sent to the ER by having an adverse response, as we're seeing many dogs do. So that's, that's another reason why I'm advocating not getting too involved with THC. And really, the, the, the use of the THC is something that should be recommended by a veterinarian. You know, this is a, it's a drug-like, so THC is much more drug-like than CBD. Veterinarians need to be involved. We need to be like a medical marijuana doctor does and give advice to human patients about how to use THC, how to introduce it, how to develop tolerance so you don't have adverse reactions. And yet veterinarians are having their hands tied across the country by veterinary medical boards who are saying, we can't get involved in this. And this is all because, as you and I mentioned privately before, the legislation when it was passed for medical marijuana for humans did not include language to include veterinarians in the process and conversation. And that's wrong. And we have to go back. Now we have to go back. We have veterinarians aren't very politically active, but we need to enlist the aid of pet owners. We need to do petitions. We need to do political action. So veterinarians can be, so language can be inserted into the legislation allows veterinarians to give advice about the use of THC. We're seeing something like that starting now in California. Dr. Gary Richter has done a good job getting that legislation moving in the right direction. It's, it's, it's moving in the right direction. It's not perfect, but it's a good first step. And, and it's totally necessary because by default, uh, many desperate pet parents are seeking the advice from a dispensary, you know, a 26-year-old without any pets at a dispensary who has no knowledge of veterinary medicine. And that's where those sometimes things can go even further south because there was not knowledge of, of canine and feline internal medicine basics. Well, and it's crazy, and, and the pet owners are desperate. I don't blame them. You know, their animals get really sick. 
many of the conventional therapies that we have are not as effective as we'd like them to be. They could be toxic, they could be disfiguring, they could be expensive, and they might not work anyway. You know, and see, and, and cannabis does seem to offer some solutions that are non-toxic and safe and not that expensive. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've, I've spoken with pen owners who have who've actually had um, marijuana sent to them from dispensaries in states where it's, where it's legal when they're in states it's not legal, taking great risk. You know, they could be terrible risk. Yeah, your terrible risk is right. Mm -hmm. Switching gears quickly to okay. the big C. Um, I just recently been a little confused. Yeah, because I, I didn't realize I read two reports and I have no idea how, how the study design was set up. I just don't know enough about the topic to speak wisely about it. I assumed that cannabis or hemp derived products would all be safe in every type of human cancer, but there, I've seen, I read some reports that in some instances it appears that certain extracts could actually feed a cancerous process. And then I became very confused and I'm anxious to talk to you about this. Is there ever situations where hemp or cannabis derived products would not be indicated or could be contraindicated in certain types of cancers? That's a good question. And really we don't have all the answers to that, Karen. Um, I know that I've seen some remarkable um, responses to cancer, even with just CBD alone, without TNC. And I've never, I have never seen a negative response, or maybe no response, but I've never seen. No, well, I haven't. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen cancer grow faster after administration ever, at least in my career. I have not, but I also think that we're seeing a lot of um, backlash. People that are trying to 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 latch upon one little negative aspect that may have may be real may not be real as a way of kind of countering this trend towards accepting cannabis there still are quite a few people out there that are negatively disposed towards it yeah. but i worked with an oncologist out in california one of the leading um largest referral centers in the country who um you know clients are coming in with putting their animals on THC and CBD from dispensaries in California. And she's been helping them tweak the dosages and make sure it's safe. And um, she's been getting some remarkable remissions. But we do know that not every tumor cell is responsive to, um, to cannabis. Um, it seems as though carcinomas are more sensitive than sarcomas, just kind of as a general as a general kind of rule of thumb. And um, I did the, I, I, with this oncologist, I was actually able to get accurate um, concentrations of the product and accurate weights for the animals. So I was able to determine what, how many mg per kg of THC were being used in these animals that went into remission. And none of them went higher than 0.85 milligrams per kilogram twice daily of THC. Wow. Some of them went as high as four or five mg per kg twice daily of the CBD. So it's not like you need a whole lot. It's not like they have to be little walking zombies all the time, totally stoned out, in order to treat the, the, the cancer. I think really lower doses can work just fine. Tumor cells have receptors on them for THC, for, um, for endocannabinoids. And that's why, the, that's why the THC can downregulate the growth of the cancer cell. And CBD promotes increased blood levels of our own endogenous THC which is why CBD can help with cancer as well. It's, it's, the science is just beautiful as far as how cannabis works. And 
I'm really, I'm, I'm really just, I, I'm addicted to it. I'm addicted to the science. It's incredible. We're so thankful because you're leading the way. It's out of your knowledge base that the rest of us are learning. And so we also appreciate well, your desire and passion to share your information. It's, it's obviously really important. It's a totally confusing topic. So then along this same kind of vein when it comes to administration is, is there a difference between tincture, capsule, powder, um, patch? Talk to us about administering these herbs. Well, we know that, um, that CBD, THC are not very well absorbed orally, but they are absorbed well enough to have an effect. Um, it's just numerically the absorption is not, not that great, and yet we can take them orally and still get very, very good results. So if you're giving, if you're going to be giving it long term, um, it may not matter whether you're using a product that has a rapid onset or, you know, is better absorbed or less absorbed because over time it all kind of evens out and you can get even blood levels with it. I think the most convenient or the most popular format right now is what they call a tincture, which is an oil infusion. It's liquid. And the value of that is that you can actually start low with just a few drops and as you see how much effect it needs you can start adding more if they need it or if they don't you might have two different sized animals in your household and rather than you know and you could just use one single bottle that could treat both of them maybe five drops for one and you know 15 drops for the other but you know some animals don't like to have liquid put in their mouth you can put the tincture on the food but it's best if the if you if you put it on a small amount of bribe food in between meals, just so this very expensive, poorly absorbed oil doesn't get lost in all the digesta and just gets pooped out versus gets you know absorbed properly. But whether it's a capsule, whether it's a liquid, I think we're looking at some transdermal technology. Um, the patches, there are patches already. The problem with patches is that you have to clip some skin, some hair in order to get skin contact. I think for transdermal, I think the PLO gel in the ear is probably more appropriate. There was a study done at CSU last year where she compared the absorption of, of squirting it into the oral cavity so it absorbs through the through the mucosal membranes, taking it orally so it goes down through the into the stomach and digestive system and liver, or transdermal. And she compared the pharmacokinetics in terms of the absorption of each of those, and she found the trans. This is Dr. Stephanie McGrath at CSU. She found that the transmucosal had the most rapid onset and had the highest blood levels. That the oral was second best and transdermal third best but when you compare it over when you compare the blood levels over a period of several weeks they pretty much all are about the same which is therapeutic so i think that as companies are trying to differentiate themselves from what's becoming a very crowded marketplace we're going to see more and more of this sort of marketing spiel about ours is better because it's got better bioavailability it's more easy more compliant and i think you know i think that's good competition is good i think the consumer the pet owner needs to choose the product that fits their budget, that's easiest to apply, that has the best quality control, so we're certain that we're really giving what's on the label. And, and from there, I think over the course of the lifetime of an animal, consumers will probably try a variety of different types of formats to find what works for them best personally.
and, and that makes total sense. But then when it comes to actually picking a product, Rob, when you say third-party validation, is that something that the companies would have on their website that it's third-party valid? Or how, how does one go about making sure that what they think is in the product is really in the product, other than calling customer service and having someone say, oh, of course it is. I mean, you need to do more than that. So how do you, what are the steps that are necessary to really choose a good quality product? You, the, the consumer, and this takes time and work, and, but this is also how you sort of vet the company. The consumer has to ask the company for what's called a certificate of analysis. And it should be done by a third-party lab. And the certificate of analysis will tell you what the potency is of it in terms of how many milligrams per milliliter or milligrams per chew or whatever it is. Um, a, a good certificate of analysis will also have um, analysis for heavy metals, for microbial contamination, for solvent residues, um, um, and for um, pesticides. So um, to get a, and, and more and more companies, as the as the competition is getting more crowded, are offering these. Maybe they will have them posted on their website. Maybe they're available upon request. Um, when the company doesn't have that, that is a very clear signal that the consumer should go and try another company. There are some products which are labeled for veterinary use, like my own company, RX Vitamins. We sell exclusively to the veterinarian, and there's two other products right now that are also targeted for the veterinarians for products that were used for the studies at CSU and Cornell. And I think that's a good indication. If a veterinarian is carrying a product that's labeled specifically for professional use, it has a higher bar of standards for quality control. And so, you know, consumers should trust their veterinarians to be able to provide them with the best quality materials, whether it's a cannabis product or it's a wormer or whatever it might be. And uh, what about different extraction techniques? That's another thing that you'll hear companies kind of attack each other about. Is there, yes. do we need to be concerned about method of extraction or not so much? Well, each method of extraction has some pros and some cons to it. You know, the higher temperature ones tend to lose some of the more delicate, volatile components in the plant. The lower temperature ones don't yield as well, but, you know, but still, but give a, bit, give a better, um, distribution of these delicate of these delicate elements. Ultimately, it's not just what you're able to pull out of the plant, but whether you're able to remove the solvent after you've done that. So alcohol extracts can wind up having zero alcohol residue after you've completed the whole process. So it doesn't really matter whether you're using alcohol or, or CO2. The best um, the best extraction solvents right now are CO2, liquid CO2 um, under pressure, um, or um, alcohol extractions. They have the, the, the highest yield and the lowest um, solvent residue. So those, are, those would be the best. But whether one's better than the other, really you need to look at the certificate of analysis to make sure that it has all the constituents of the plant that you want, the terpenes and the minor cannabinoids and the content of CBD. It's, it's a technical thing. I understand a lot of confusion by consumers. It's, it's a lot of chemistry. It, is. it is. And then um, I, I guess one last question that comes to my brain. I have people say, you know, the first bottle, like in between lot numbers, and you know, it's a plant, and plants change with moisture and seasonal variability. And I know that these plants are grown in controlled environments, but they're still 
uniqueness between strains and plants and soil conditions or fertilizers, how, you know, what the solutions that they're using to supply nutrients to the plants. I've had some people say that a bottle worked for a while and then that brand quit or this lot number quit. Is that a possibility that there could be that much variation within one brand of product? Well, if, if it's poorly regulated, yes. I mean, for, um, for the RX Vitamins products that I get from a, a hemp grower in Colorado called Folium Biosciences, which I also happen to work for them as chief veterinary officer, um, we make sure that we, we third-party test every batch um, and we make sure it stays consistent. We've recently had um, a change in the color of the solution. It's gotten a darker green, probably because the carrier oil, the hemp seed oil, has a slightly different color to it now. But when we look at the analyses as far as the content of CBD and the terpenes and the freedom from contamination, they're all fine. And so consumers are, are, you know, are calling us up and asking us about it, but we're not seeing any problems with the um, efficacy. But another company that's not doing that much testing or maybe is deriving its oil from a variety of different sources, you could see that. And it has a limited shelf life, depending on how it's stored. Um, and maybe, maybe their measurement, me measuring technique isn't as accurate as it should be. So it, you certainly could see a variation from batch to batch. Um, when it comes to an expiration date, Rob, is there something that um, obviously good companies would have a use by date? Is it something that should be used up, would you say, in a year, six months, three months? You have any? We, with the aging studies, with the aging studies that we've done virtually with the um, with the hemp um, tinctures, it's 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 about an eighteen to twenty four month um, um, window. It's pretty good, but it needs to be kept cool needs to be kept out of light, needs to be kept sealed, you know, and people will take the, uh, the bottle and they'll put the dropper inside the animal's mouth and then without cleaning the dropper off, they'll put it back in the bottle and then they'll start to see scum develop in there. So, you know, it's good, it's, you should be aware of that. You know, if you're going to put the dropper in the animal's mouth or it gets contaminated, you should wipe it off before you put it back in. The bottle should probably be kept in the refrigerator, which will also maintain better shelf life. Because um, it, it does deteriorate. I had a, a batch in my refrigerator, a, a bulk batch, about a gallon of oil that has been there since October. And I just recently uh, had a lab reanalyze it and it went from 30 mg per kg, uh, 30 mg per ml, down to 28 um, mg per ml in a period of nine months. Okay, but so, that's still pretty darn good in terms of It's water. still pretty good, but it's, it's, it, it does show some gra and gradual deterioration, and that was under the best of circumstances, you know, sure. just kept in the refrigerator. And Rob, how, how often are these plants sprayed with glyphosate or potentially other, when these, when these plants are being mass produced, is it a plant that is highly attracted to insects, where in theory pesticide application would be a commonplace, or is it more resistant to pesticides? Generally speaking, is there is should we be should we be concerned about pesticides? Well, pesticides need to be tested for. Period. I mean, because we don't we don't know if there's some some drift, you know, from a neighboring field that where pesticides are being applied. So that's why testing is very important. And the hemp plant is what we call a bioremediator, which means that it will pull up stuff from the soil. Actually, they used hemp plants around the Chernobyl um, accident to draw toxins up from the soil. Now you can't use the plant after that, you have to burn it because it, it accumulates these toxins in it. 
um, and certainly plants that are grown like let's say in a high selenium soil could have high levels of selenium that could wind up being a problem, could be toxic as well. So that's why analyzing is, is really important to know, um, you know, what you've got. And, um, but the hemp plant itself, the cannabis plant itself is very resistant to pests and very resistant to, to most everything, you know, when it's grown outside. Um, grown indoors, we tend to see more mold, we see insects and things like that, but outside, the plants are extremely hardy and usually don't need any kind of pesticide or herbicide applications. Generally, don't even need that much in terms of fertilization. You know, they're weeds and they grow, they're very, they're very robust, they grow very well. That's awesome. So really, when it comes to evaluating, when pet parents are kind of faced with this, what brain do I go with, the bottom line is your, the company of choice should be happily able to provide a, a certificate of analysis, be happy to answer your questions, be happy to, to provide third-party validation or transparency, or we, that we need to move along. Exactly, exactly. So that's a real good first place. And, and many companies are recognizing this now and um, offering you know, their certificates of analysis on the website. Um, it's, it's something that has to be done in order, in order to... Uh, reassure the consumer that what they're getting is going to be safe and effective. Well, this is a fantastic update. Um, these are all the questions that people regularly ask me, but uh, it has been a couple years since we've covered this topic. So I appreciate you weighing in with your vast expertise. on Thank, this you. Thank you. It's always fun. It's my favorite subject. I can't stop talking about it. Well, and we appreciate you for it. Thanks so much, Dr. Silver. Thank you, Ken. Dr. Becker. Pleasure to talk to you.